0: In this True Crime Law & Order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Okay, I, uh, <laughs> uh I just, I'm trying to change it up. I'm trying to keep us fresh and on our toes.
1: We're staying active. We're staying energetic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, what's new? Oh, not a whole bunch. I have been listening to, I've, I took a long break from listening to podcasts. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Cause my main oh, need to tell me that. podcast zone has always been the car. Yeah. Because when I got into podcasts, it was because I started driving for Lyft yes. and, uh, I was driving around listening to my music and one of my like passengers was like, have you ever heard of a podcast called My Favorite Murder? I was mm-hmm. like, I've never even listened to a podcast ever. <laughs> and she's like, oh, you would love it. Because we were talking about like Dateline and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, that became like my podcast zone. And then I found ways to do podcasting at home since I very rarely drive anymore, of course. Yeah. And uh, the easiest place is work. But work has just evolved a lot. So much over honestly over pandemic so there are phases where i'll be like okay to listen to podcasts and then i just find myself rewinding the whole time (laughs) yeah so i'm finally i think finding spaces to listen to podcasts again and i'm starting with like my go-tos you know my Merday brown my glennon doyle (laughs) yeah and so that's kind of what i've what i've been catching up on lately i've have been their podcasts um other than that i have an anti recommendation that i think i'll talk more about on the other podcast but i just have to mention it here cuz i'm oh okay i'm so petty in drama um we watched have you, okay you have feelings about this creator and their their shows is it um Liam
0: no I was about to say Liam Payne but that's one of the like One Direction guys, right?
1: I think you're Payne Lindsay. Yeah, I think you're mixing up a few people. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh it's the folks who do those Netflix shows haunting on Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass. Oh, I really
0: I mean I loved Hill House and Bly Manor. I Midnight Mass just didn't do it for me, but maybe it was I was
1: just in the wrong mindset or something. I don't know. I I have to so they came out with another one. And Oh, really? I was so excited cuz I generally all love all of their stuff, even some of the movies I've seen. <sighs> What's this one called? Don't waste your time.com. No, it's called Oh really? <laughs> it's called Midnight The Midnight Club. The Midnight Club. Okay. Yeah. And it's weird because we saw the trail so we saw the trailer on Netflix the other day. It was one of those things like we finished watching something else and then they, they played this trailer, right? The trailer looked okay. There was, like, scary things, ghosts, ghoulish things, supernatural, whatever. And the general concept is there's a group of young folks, uh, high school age-ish, and they all live in a hmm, semi-assisted living facility that they voluntarily go to because they are uh, struggling with a terminal illness, most of them some form of cancer. Okay, And they've decided they're taking agency over their own lives. They don't want to do the hospital route. They want minimal treatment and a better quality of life. So they go to this place and they get that there, whatever. And the trailer makes you believe it's about this place might be haunted or there's some sort of weird things going on here. Like everything looks like just a typical show, but then, oh, my God, what's this ghoulish woman and guy with the dead eyes in the mirror? Mm -hmm. You watch it it's not what you think it's going to be oh really i had high hopes and then every episode i kept thinking okay it's going to change soon it's going to ramp up oh okay next episode they're going to get into this no it just it just stays a like cw teen drama the whole time yeah they it felt like they made every main character who's struggling with a terminal illness or living with a terminal illness in some way like they couldn't just be human beings. They had to be the saddest stories you've ever heard in your entire life. Yeah. Like, it, huh. I found it a little disrespectful. I mean, I don't... Interesting. I've had people in... I have had family members die of cancer in my close family. Yeah, yeah. And I won't say I have the same experience of them. some folks who have... who Of course, who were living with it or who have family members who, you know, struggle with it for many, many years... <laughs> In my opinion, from my exp- experience, I found it kind of disrespectful to people in that circumstance. It it felt like the message was, "You're you get a diagnosis and that's it. Like your yeah, life like is it over." Made it
0: all about their illness.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it it felt a little bit disrespectful. Like huh. any, and they really tried to explore like every possible type of young person who could be in this and, like, took their storyline and ramped it up to, like, 10. And it was hmm. just a little bit much. Wow. Well, so, I don't know. Good to know. And me and Davey watched it, and I was thinking the whole time, is it going to get better? And there were some moments where I couldn't hold my tongue, and I was like, okay, that was a lot. The dialogue is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And Davey seemed to be more into it, so I didn't want to take that away from him. And we were in, like, the the literally the last episode. And I was thinking, I can't believe they're not going to tie up any of the questions I have. Because there's no way. We only have 60 minutes. Yeah. Finally, like, I said something like, are they never going to explain who that was? And Davey's (laughs) like, I thought this was going to be good. (laughs) And we just started talking (laughs) crap about it. And I was like, we could have been doing this (laughs) from episode two. (laughs) Uh, And he's like, well, maybe i will get better. I'm like, no, this is the finale. And he's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah, no answers, no questions get answered. If you're looking for anything that has any semblance of Hill House, Bly Manor, or Midnight Mass, other than the actors, this is not it, in my opinion. Interesting. Okay. Not it. Good to know. But that, that that's the, only thing, like a... <laughs> the only thing I've
0: been watching, and I haven't finished it, but I, I've watched like two and a half episodes of it so far, is um, a TV show on Netflix called The Watcher.
1: Oh, and We're it's a Ryan Murphy this.
0: thing, which, you know how I feel about Ryan Murphy.
1: I know. I know. But
0: it had such a great cast that I, like, had to check it out. Uh, and you know the story, right? It's, the, it's the, the people who have that house, and they start getting weird letters.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of local to me and where I grew up and where I live now. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just a oh, couple towns know. away. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, well, anyway, it's a dramatization of that story. And uh, it's got Margot Martindale in it, who I love. Um, and so far, it's good. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, Ryan Murphy shows are always, like, well-produced. Right. If they don't always, like... Go off the rails. Go completely off the fucking rails. <laughs> uh, so we'll see how, how this one evolves. I And what I... I know the story vaguely. Like, I, I know... I've like heard it on other podcasts, and I've, uh, I we've like talked about it a couple times, not like covering it, but like I, I am fuzzy enough on the details that at this point I'm, I don't know how much Ryan Murphy is embellishing, um, right, right? So I can't say like, oh, it's a really accurate retelling, or if it's like you know, amped up for Ryan Murphy style vibes, but uh, it's entertaining so far at least.
1: We watched one of those. Oh, the Watcher is out. Uh, what does it get right? Kind of things. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't like super spoiler heavy. It was kind of just like teasing the show, so you could still, you know, whatever. And yeah. it seemed, <clears throat> <laughs> it seemed as though it, it, it's staying pretty true to the source material. And and since I'm not going to spoil anything for those who don't know the story, but based on the content of what actually happens throughout the case, it's an easier topic to cover than some of the other things out there that are a little bit more touchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subject yeah, matter-wise, yeah. you know? Yeah, I totally get what you mean. I actually, like, love that. I, I, this sounds terrible. I'm very mystified and intrigued by this whole story. Yeah. Um. I, I just, I don't even know what I believe ultimately still, even to this day. Because still they
0: don't know for sure who it was, right? It's,
1: there's theories but there's really no concrete evidence and I don't know so I I'm thinking if I ever have a free episode <laughs> one of these days I'm thinking about that. That's always like in the back of my head. I'm like oh and I thought that before this came out because I'm like that's local. I yeah. loved the episodes of um, podcasts that I've heard about it. It was always in Weird New Jersey, which is a magazine that comes out in the tri-state area that people may know about, and a website and stuff. So it's always been sort of New Jersey lore. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I'm
0: very well, intrigued. I, I'm I, happy I, to not uh, so far. I won't add it to my list of things to cover then. I'll let you have that one.
1: Ooh, thank you. Was there, Was it going to be on yours?
0: I, I thought about it. I was like, "Oh, this could be one when like we get an episode that's not based on a specific crime. I could like do this, but I, I'll i I'll leave it for you for when you come across one of those." Love it, thanks. You know what it reminds me of? Ooh, I don't know if you ever read this book when you were like. This was a book that kind of I think came out when probably you and I were like eight or ten or so, mm-hmm. and it was a book. I think it was called
1: The Babysitter. Hmm. Does that ring a bell? No. Let me see. Let me make sure that's the right title. It's hard, though, because you're saying book from when we're 8 or 10 and The Babysitter, and how could I not think just Babysitter's Club?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So it's like that memory has stolen the ability for my brain to even (laughs) journey outside of it.
0: (laughs) So it's an R.L. Stein book that was published in 1989. Uh So I guess I would have been 7. You would have been, like, what, 5? Yeah. So it's (laughs) a—I'm sure you'll never read it, but it's a babysitter who's, like, being harassed, terrorized by— somebody or something and if i recall correctly at some point in like maybe the second or third book like she's getting like threatening letters or something i think and at some point in one of the books i'm pretty sure the rl stein has it that like she's had some kind of psychotic break and she's sending herself the letters but doesn't realize she is oh and that's kind of when when i thought about the watcher series i was like if it hadn't happened to multiple families, I was. it almost seems like a weird thing, like that kind of a thing, because it's so strange.
1: Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I, I was not allowed to, to read those types of books growing up. Oh my gosh, Matt. <laughs> that would actually be kind of fun
0: for a Patreon episode, since it's like a pretty... Easy, like young adult kind oh, of read. Yeah.
1: Uh, that would like read old Goosebumps books or this skate babysitter yes. book. I would totally that would be do fine. that if we could yeah. find uh, copies that are pretty easy to get. Yes, because I actually, I like if that. we do that, I almost want to get the paperback. Like, oh, for sure. I don't even want to yeah. download it. I want to like feel that book in my hand and look at that cover every day. <laughs> there was
0: a a book. That, there was like a book series that I read a little bit of when I was a kid. Um, and it was called the Nina Tan Levin Mysteries. And I don't, there was multiple books. And it was sort of like a Nancy Drew-ish, but like more supernatural. Mm-hmm. And I just remember one book called The Ghost in the Big Brass Bed. Ooh. And there were other ones that I think I read all of them. Um, the Bear in the those Big Blue House. would be kind of fun too. <laughs> what? I said The Bear in the Big Blue House. No, The Ghost Who Wore Gray is another one. Mm. If anybody else has read
1: these, let me know. Mm. See, I missed out on this kind of stuff. My parents were like, uh, Satan. That's Satan. Yeah. Fair. You're going to the book fair and you're going to look <laughs> and not touch. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, are shall you, we get uh, into the episode? Yeah, let's let's do this Law and Order thing.
0: Okay. Well, I'm the recapper, and this is episode two of season five. It is titled Coma, and the episode opens on a busy street with a couple fighting over something. I can't even remember what it is at this point. I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. It's their favorite opening some couple (laughs) arguing. Um, And they're walking their dog, who, by the way, their dog is named Lamb Chop. And as they're walking down the street, they see, like, a man kind of, like, go the opposite direction of them, like, looking into the cars that are parked on the street. And it sounds like maybe they've had a series of break-ins or something uh, into the cars because, like, the guy is, like, gonna hassle the guy and, like, tell him to get away and whatever. But the the woman walking the dog with him is like, no, just leave him alone, whatever. Right. But then they hear, like, a... Uh, car window breaking and so the guy's like that's it and he like starts chasing after the guy and then he gets to the car that the man had broken into the guy has run away at this point and they see a woman inside who it looks like she's dead but we later learn she is not Um, but she has some kind of like head wound Mm -hmm. and logan and briscoe arrive at the scene and the woman is in a car they don't have her like id or anything like her her purse appears to maybe be missing uh but they find the car is registered to dobson enterprises and the the man who broke into the window the like beat cops in the area have tracked him down but uh he doesn't have a gun and the man who uh like found the woman said that there was no gunshot there was just the window breaking. Like he didn't shoot this woman while we were there. So things are a little kind of like weirdly out of sync. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So they think like maybe she was, my thought at this point was maybe she was like shot and then placed in the car. But we later learned that's not correct either. Meanwhile, we get the title sequence and I had a little bit of time. So I decided that I would balance my checkbook, which required (laughs) me to order checks from the bank find vendors who would still accept checks, write several checks, wait for them to get cashed and then account for the changes in my balance. Do you still I have, have a any lot checks? Of feelings.
1: <laughs> when I was growing up, <laughs> I, in my mind, having a checkbook was next to having a uh, a handwritten like telephone book yeah. uh, of being an adult. Like that was Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It like you got Three things when you grew up: you got a car, you got a checkbook, (laughs) and an address. And you had an address book of your own, filled filled with contacts. Yeah. Um, And I just thought I'd be using checks forever. Yeah. And by the time I was old enough to really get my first, like, have the need for a check, which was like my first time I needed a check was to pay a rent check. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like a deposit. I just felt like, wow. I just haven't been a grown up yet. Now, now I'm really getting it. Here I am. Mm-hmm. I never use checks. I never use checks. I hate when I ha- if someone requires me to use a check. I'm so irritated. I yeah. only have them because I know some places make you, and it's yeah. in fact my address from <laughs> nine years ago. <laughs> oh, really? I've been crossing it out and just putting whatever my current address is <laughs> That's for funny. like a decade. One yeah. checkbook for a decade. Yeah. I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about checks. I just, it always, the the, the term you used, balancing my checkbook. <laughs> like, didn't every TV show growing up was like, you need to learn how to balance your checkbook. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Anyway, <laughs> back to the episode. So we're at the hospital and the doctor is telling Logan and Briscoe that uh, this woman has like a bullet that's lodged in her skull. Um, she's got abrasions on her neck, which Logan is like, you know, does that match, like, a necklace being ripped off? And the doctor says, like, maybe. And she has bruises on her face, which appear to be older than her, like, gunshot-related injuries. So maybe she was assaulted, you know, prior to uh, the this attack. Hmm. So they track down the—this <laughs> is the stupidest thing. <laughs> so they already know that the car is registered to Dobson Enterprises, And then they in this at the station, they track down the owner of the car who is Michael Dobson. And it's like, Well yeah, like just go to Dobson Enterprises. Like we know we already know that part. It was just so weird. Anyway, and they're like, maybe maybe he'll be grateful, like, this woman being shot in his car. And Logan has a line, like, she saved his radio. Because the whole thing is like, oh, people have been stealing car radios out of these cars. It's like this, <sighs> this area of the neighborhood was known as audio warehouse. Because people were constantly breaking into cars and stealing car stereos.
1: Is that still a thing? In the 90s. It was. I mean, I remember. I think it happened to my sister. I think someone stole her stereo out of her car once.
0: I for sure like my friend I never had a I never had I had an 80s Mustang when I was Uh-oh. you know learning how to drive so I I did not have a nice stereo and I certainly didn't have one of those ones that like actually detached from the car but I had a friend who did and it was like every time she parked it was like okay I have to take the stereo out and yes. I have to put it in the glove compartment and it was just like such a thing.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: <sighs> oh my god those were the days. Yep she they find they track down this michael dobson and he they go to his apartment it's like a babysitter who's there like he's not there they come inside and the woman or the babysitter like shows them around a bit and logan and briscoe see a photo and they're like who is this woman and she says that's mrs dobson so the woman who is in a coma who has been shot is mrs dobson hmm. so they ask where mr dobson would be and she says oh he's at Haha. And Logan goes, ha And she says, yeah, haha ha <laughs> Which is apparently the name of the comedy club that he is the owner of. So they head down there to talk to Michael Dobson to tell him that, you know, his wife has been shot and she's in a coma. And to find out, like, where he was at the time of all of this happening. And at the comedy club, we open with, like, a scene of somebody doing stand-up who is, like, apparently bombing really badly because mm-hmm. his main joke is about like somebody asking a woman why she waited so long to get divorced and the answer is we were waiting for the kids to die <laughs> <Ha-ha. All right. laughs> yeah ha! <ha-ha. laughs> so they speak with mr dobson and he is played by larry miller who uh i immediately recognized but i couldn't place what i knew him from and i still like even looking over his imdb page I was like, I'm not sure exactly where I recognize him from, because he's been in a million things. Uh, And the main thing I think, like, the most number of people would know him from is he was Larry Miller in Pretty Woman. Oh, wow. He was, like, the, the scuzzy, one of the scuzzy friends in Pretty Woman, I think.
1: Yeah. He was in, um, oh my god, what's that movie? The Nutty Professor. The Nutty Professor. Oh. Huh. He was, like, his boss. Oh, who, I like, mean treats him like crap. <laughs> he's
0: been he plays kind of the same character in everything which he has kind of like a, a dickhead face and a he dickhead does. voice. So he he kind of like is perfectly cast to play like a grade A asshole. He's like the neighbor that you hope you don't live next door to basically is his character.
1: Oh, 100% or he's like the the boss who is stealing your money and uh promising you raises and like just hangs out in the office all day
0: and makes like inappropriate comments about the women in the office.
1: Yeah, and then like walks out in the middle of the a Tuesday and says, "Okay, I'm taking a long weekend, going to my yacht." And he's wearing a sailor yeah. hat. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly who he plays.
0: <laughs> so, he's he's at haha ha, his comedy club and Logan and Briscoe inform him that his wife has been shot and they they're like, you know, telling him it, maybe it was a robbery, we don't know what where why would she have been there. And he tells, he says, like, oh, I told her it was too dangerous to be working at night. And they're like, what do you mean? What did she do for work? We learned she worked for a newspaper uh, as, like, a journalist for, like, part-time hours. So they head down to the Manhattan Weekly Reader. Which, by the way, on the title card, they call it the Manhattan Weekly Reader. And then in the scene, they refer to it as the Manhattan Sentinel. So apparently, they decided to change the name of the newspaper sometime between creating the title cards and the script and didn't check in with each other.
1: Get it together, losers. <laughs>
0: Literally. So uh, the journalist, it, or the head of the newspaper, whatever, you know, he finds out that Sandra uh, R- uh, Dobson has been shot, and he says, like, ugh, well, I hope she gets out of her coma. She's my best reporter. Which I feel like maybe a little more empathy would be appropriate you know, than that.
1: A touch, you know? Uh, Just a touch. Yeah, Maybe.
0: And they, they ask him, like, why she's working at this paper. You know, he he says she's the only competent journalist he has. Like, she could have been great. She could have been one of the greats. And they're like, well, then why is she at your shitty-ass paper? Right. And he's like, I'm a stop on the mommy track. So essentially, his, like, what we learn is that, you know, she wanted to be a mother, and that derailed her journalism career, and the Times isn't very... Flexible with women who want to have children. So it was sort of like this is where she ended up because she wanted to be a mom.
1: Right. And what I would ask is aside from the obvious questions, um, if you only have one talented journalist, maybe, you know, put an ad in the paper. Yeah. Maybe it's (laughs) time to update your staff. (laughs) Right.
0: So uh, he tells them that she had that evening that she had been shot, she was covering like a a neighborhood watch type meeting like a citizens advisory board meeting and uh that she was going to meet someone on Riverside Drive uh to talk about the board meeting and at this point Logan and Briscoe are like okay so maybe this was like a carjacking but Logan is like you know I think we need to be looking more closely at Mr. Dobson because the bruising that she had is older than the gunshot, and so maybe he was abusing her, and maybe he also killed her. So they go talk to forensics, and they they're looking at the car that she was found in, and uh, they find gunpowder residue on the headrest. Uh, they find so she was shot in the car. They find her keys were on the floor, so she like dropped them as she was attacked, and then we get like the the. Um, Forensics guy, it I it's so weird when they do these kinds of things where it's like as opposed to giving like presenting each other with the facts of the case, they're like, Isn't anybody gonna ask me about X? Like as as though like if you hadn't volunteered it, I would just like not tell you about important evidence. It's weird, right?
1: It's very strange, yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> so he's like, Aren't isn't anybody gonna ask me about fingerprints? And we get this kind of, like, weird choreographed scene where essentially, like, what we learn is there are a set of fingerprints on the armrest, but the orientation of the fingerprints is in such a way that it was, like, somebody who reached into the car to, like get something like they you know he reached in to steal her jewelry or something like that the fingerprints happen to belong to mr dobson Mm -hmm. so and they're like well it's you know his car it's registered to him or whatever and he's like yeah but if that were true wouldn't you think there would be fingerprints in other areas of the car and there aren't his fingerprints are only found in that one location at that orientation so they're thinking he was definitely involved in this shooting in some way. Right. Most likely. Back at the station, detective Ask Jeeves runs in and tells them <laughs> that they found Mrs. Dobson's purse in a trash can and in that they find her little journalist notebook, which by the way is like a little pink notebook of and I'm course. like of
1: course. It should have been a diary. Uh, it should have said on the front w- like my thoughts. <laughs> <keep> or <out." laughs>
0: uh, what was what's her name? Um oh god. Mich- not Michelle Branch. Uh, Michelle Trachtenberg? Michelle Trachtenberg. <laughs> Yes. Uh, it should have been, like, the Harriet the Spy journal.
1: I wish. Oh, God, I so... love Harriet
0: the Spy. <laughs> I n- actually never watched it.
1: Oh, I loved that as a kid. That's that's one Was... I, we should uh, revisit for the Patreon. Oh, Maybe.
0: <laughs> that would be fun, too. So... In this journal of hers, her journalist notebook, they find a list of banks in the area and some note about safety deposit boxes. So Van Buren is like, there is some weird, like, jumps in logic in this episode. So Van Buren is like, okay, list of safety deposit boxes. Maybe her husband runs a stand-up comedy club, which we know is a cash business. So maybe he was skimming cash off the business and she found out and she wanted to find that money. So go talk to the banks in the area and see what you can find out. All right. So she (laughs) thinks maybe, you know, she wanted a divorce and she wanted to find out about any cash before she filed for divorce. So they go and talk to the babysitter again. uh, And she says that sometimes she would hear Mr. Dobson screaming at Mrs. Dobson, but they would always put on a good front. Uh, That night that Mrs. Dobson was shot. She says that the daughter was upset and they're like, why was she upset? And she was like, I don't know. She just said she had a stomach ache. That ends up being somewhat relevant later.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mr. Dobson, she says, was not there when she arrived to babysit. And that uh, Mrs. Dobson told her that she was, uh, you know, going to be out late working. And then at about nine o'clock, uh, Mrs. Dobson called and said that she would be at her sister's house Uh And then at 10 o'clock, Mr. Dobson called and asked if Mrs. Dobson was home. And the babysitter said, no, she's at her sister's house. And Mr. Dobson apparently got mad at this and hung up the phone or something like that. Meanwhile, we cut to the hospital where we are meeting this said sister of Mrs. Dobson, who is played by Deborah Monk, who is an actress who I immediately, again, recognized because she has been in like a hundred million things but nothing that i could point to and say like that's what i recognized her from you know yeah but she's she's got an incredibly long imdb list
1: yeah she is she had a very familiar face i didn't know where i knew her from either i didn't even look her up i should have she's been in several law and order episodes so i
0: think we'll see her again
1: oh okay yeah she's just one of those people you see in a lot of tv shows
0: yes yes um, so she says that her sister, uh, left her house at about 11 and they ask, did she, did you see anyone uh, like out on the street with her? And she says she saw a man in a white jacket, but she didn't really see anything else. Uh, and she says she didn't hear a gunshot cause she had turned on the TV and they ask her like, you know, was your sister happily married? Was her husband hurting her? We saw bruises and she's like, yeah, she, he, he hits her. Um, And my sister was wanting a divorce. She told me she wanted a divorce, but she was afraid of her husband. And uh, they ask, you know, more about this. And she says that Mr. Dobson had told Mrs. Dobson that he would uh, fight for custody of the kids and he would take them away from her. And he had some money uh, hidden and something, something. And apparently he would tell her she was a bad mother because she chose to work a couple hours a week. And they're like, how do you know that he hit her? And she says, well, you can only accidentally walk into a door so many times. So she saw bruises frequently, it sounds like. So they go to talk to Mr. Dobson, and he's watching the kids. And he is, again, just acting like a grade A asshole who has, like, no fear that anything he says could be used against him by the police because he is very flippant with his words with them Mm -hmm. Uh, including to the point where they're like we know that you were hitting her and he says like I don't need you to tell me I'm a son of a bitch I've been one for a long time it's good hours so he's like joking about being a domestic abuser They go and talk to somebody who works at his club, a bartender, about the night of the shooting and ask, like, where was he? Was he here the whole time? And he's like, yeah, he was, like, out here in the front of the club most of the time because he's, like, a super micromanager and wants to make sure I don't pour more than, like, you know, 0.05 ounces over a shot amount for somebody who gets a free drink. And they're like, he was here the whole night. And he said, yeah, he was out here except for when he was in his office. And so they're like, where's the office? They go and look at it and see that the office has a convenient side exit from the club out onto the street. So they're like, okay, he could have, when he was supposedly in his office, gone out this side door and, you know, gone and shot his wife and come back and nobody would have necessarily been the wiser. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they can't really, like, place him, like, nobody can place him at the club exactly at the time of the shooting, but it's still kind of, like, all circumstantial evidence. They don't think they have a strong enough case so far. So they're they're thinking they need to track down the these bank accounts or this safety deposit box uh, where he had all this cash to see if that, like, gives them any information. So they track down the banks in the area in the wife's notebook and speak with a man at the bank who's, like, uh, you know, telling them that— Mrs. Dobson had come in and asked about safety deposit box, and the story she told him was, you know, um, I know my husband has a safety deposit box, and I, I want to open one, and I want to know if I can get a discount if my husband has one here. And he says that he told her, yes, your husband has one here, but no, we don't give a discount for a second one. And they said, like, what what happened next? And he said she, that she appeared happy and left. And then they're like, okay, maybe did Mr. Dobson know that she was looking into these safety deposit boxes? And the bank teller happens to let slip that uh, the bank manager had told him later to call Mrs. Dobson and offer her a discount on a second safety deposit box. And when he did call, it was Mr. Dobson who answered and not Mrs. Dobson. And later that day... Uh, Mr. Dobson came and brought a briefcase and access to safety deposit box. So they're like, okay, so now we've got an indication that he found out she was looking for money. He came and cleared it out and now has, like, motivation to, like, get rid of her, potentially.
1: No more need for her.
0: Right. Uh, Kincaid thinks it's still not quite enough for an arrest warrant, but we could probably get a search warrant. And so they searched the home and briscoe finds a gun in the desk drawer that you know potentially could match the bullet which by the way is literally a gun the size of like one of those like 99 cent store water pistols like Mm. it's the size of a thumb (laughs) um and logan finds a tweed jacket uh in the bla- in the hamper and so he's like, you know, oh maybe this is the jacket that the sister saw somebody wearing. Uh, so they take that down to forensics to see if there's any like blood stains on it. And the like forensics guy is like, ah, tweed conceals a multitude of sins. And Logan goes like murder and it literally was a scene out of like Troll 2. Yeah. Like the acting was so fucking weird, it's so slapstick. Very. Um and he's like like, spilled gravy. But uh, there are bloodstains on the jacket, and they do match Mrs. Dobson's blood type. But unfortunately, uh, they can't prove how old they are. And because this guy is, we know is a domestic abuser, the fact that he has admitted to, like, abusing his wife means that that actually could help him get away with the murder because, like, there is reason that there would be blood stains on it that are older than this gunshot. So Kincaid is like, I still think, you know, we've got safety deposit box, we've got the threats of divorce, we've got the abuse, we've got him not being present at the club, we've got bloodstains on the blazer, like, I think we can convince a grand jury. So they arrest him for attempted murder in the second degree. Um, McCoy talks to McCoy, the, uh, what's his name, uh, Sam Water- yes. Waterston, is that his name? Yes, uh, The new DA, or as ADA, E-A-D-A. He talks to Logan and Briscoe and is like, have you talked to the seven-year-old daughter about like why she was upset? And they're like, no, she's seven. But Kincaid goes and talks to her. And uh, she says that that night her mom and her dad had had a fight and her dad told the, told her mom that she, he didn't want her to go out. And we're like kind of getting an indication of like what might've happened that night from the seven-year-old. But suddenly Michael Dobson shows up at the sister's house and takes the kids because he's made bail and he's in, he's entitled to have custody of his kids pending his trial. Meanwhile, the sister files a civil suit to get custody of the children because she's like, I don't want these kids to be with uh, my sister's husband who tried to kill her. And the DA's... Ch- are going to intervene in this civil suit because they're concerned that Michael Dobson might influence the testimony of the seven-year-old daughter, which they think will be helpful for their case. Ultimately, the judge rules in the father's favor because uh, the judge spoke with the daughter and she had changed her story entirely, said there was no fight, and the DAs are like, of course, because he told her to say that. Uh, but they lose that case. Mm-hmm. So Kincaid and McCoy talk next steps and they decide that they need to get the bullet out of Mrs. Dobson's brain so that they can match it to his gun. Mr. Dobson tries to block their attempt to have a doctor remove the bullet and uh, they draft a motion to force the removal of it and give the sister medical decision making, which they're ultimately successful in. The sister decides to have the bullet removed in either the hopes that her sister will get better or... Or that, you know, potentially she could die, but the bullet will be matched to Mr. Dobson's gun.
1: You're right.
0: After all that, the sister dies and the bullet does not match Michael Dobson's gun. So McCoy says he's like a a pitbull with a rope. He's not letting go. <laughs> and he says to amend the indictment now from since she's dead, from attempted murder to to murder two. And he has managed to track down somebody at a gun store near the county where the Dobsons had a vacation home who can testify that Michael Dobson had purchased a gun that matched the bullet type found in Mrs. Dobson's brain. Mm -hmm. The sister also takes the stand and testifies against the husband and talks about the abuse and how she was, you know, Michael had been threatening her and... Michael had even threatened the sister uh, in between if she tried to take the children away from him. Um, but all of this is moot because midway through the trial, the DA's office gets a phone call from Logan, who takes them down to the police station, uh, to somebody who's being interrogated, who talks about uh, who's giving... It's really unclear like who this guy is or how they even made this connection, but it's some guy who is talking about somebody he knew who was, like, a a drug addict who had been bragging about, you know, quote-unquote, knocking off some rich white lady in a BMW. (laughs) So uh, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, maybe Mr. Dobson didn't do this after all, and maybe it was just a carjacking all along. So they searched the apartment of this man who had been bragging about killing a a white lady in a BMW, and he, this guy died in the meantime, by the way. But in his apartment, they find a white jacket, they find a gun that matches the bullet, and they find Sandra Dobson's credit cards. So, oof. So back at the Supreme Court, the DA's announced that they're dropping all charges against Michael Dobson, and they tell the sister all of this, and she is distraught because she believes she killed her sister for nothing like she authorized this procedure that ultimately killed her sister to prove something that wasn't true terrible michael dobson is like gloating like an asshole who apparently still doesn't care that his wife is dead and we we think that's the end of the episode but suddenly logan runs up to the da's and is like you've got to look at this and it's a videotape i don't know how they came across this but it's a videotape of the guy the drug addict who died of hepatitis doing a stand-up set at Michael Dobson's club. He's wearing a white jacket in that video, and he the video shows Michael Dobson and this guy interacting on stage. Mm-hmm. And so their theory is that Michael Dobson paid this man to kill his wife, but unfortunately they have, like, run down every line of investigation they can to try to prove this connection between this man who killed Sandra Dobson and Michael Dobson, but they have insufficient evidence to think that they can prove it to a jury. And that's the end of the episode.
1: Ooh.
0: Ooh. I did not see that twist coming, actually.
1: Yeah, me neither. Well, wow, great. great job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Do you. Are you ready? I think so. I don't know. I did not have any guesses as to what this was based off of. <clears throat>
1: Well, that's okay because it was not based off of any true crime. Oh, all right then. So I had a freebie. All right. Um, I tried to find. I think I found something that has some elements. Okay. That are related, but it's very loose. I was trying to find comedy club murders or, um, you know, agents or. I don't know. I was just trying to find something like that yeah. performer, manager. Didn't really find anything like. That was helpful. So, yeah, okay. I'm going to be telling the story of. Let's see. I don't want to give anything away. Okay. I'm going to be telling you the story of the Carlson family. Okay. Okay. So, let's begin. Let's.
0: <laughs>
1: Carl Carlson. Carl Carlson. Don't get don't get tongue tied. <laughs> uh, he was born in. It looks like 1960 or 1961, multiple sources, multiple things. Um, He has six siblings, so a big family, and he grew up in New York. New York State, not New York City. Okay. Thank Um, you for
0: saying that because New York in my brain is literally the city.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he he lived in the Finger Lakes area, it's called. Um, Okay. His... He grew up in Seneca County, near Seneca Falls, and okay. it's in the Finger Lakes, which is a really nice area of New York State. It's very scenic. There's wine tasting, wineries. It's a common vacation spot. It's called the Finger okay. Lakes, I think, because they're, it's located between these long um, – just these very long lakes. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so it's a, it's a very nice area that he grew up in. Um, he was a – Well-known, part of a well-known family. His father was a highway official for years, so pretty nice little life. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, the city of Seneca Falls, where he grew up, is often still to this day believed to be the um, inspiration for Bedford Falls for the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I've never seen that. Oh, that's a great, well, I mean, it's old, but it's such a great movie. Even if you don't like Christmas, it's a great movie, I think. Okay. It's just, you know, I mean, you've seen the movie, if you've seen any TV show where they do that, it's a wonderful life thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angel gets its (laughs) wings, whatever. Yeah. But it's worth it. But basically, the idea is idyllic. Okay. (laughs) Idyllic, however you want to pronounce it. So Carl has a pretty normal upbringing. Uh, He meets a woman named Cindy Best in November of 1992. So he's in his early 30s. And... The two of them get along really well. They meet and they hit it off. They start dating. And he uh he seems pretty good. It seems like a good match. They're they're pretty happy together. Uh the okay. two let's see they're at very different points in their life by this point, which we'll go back to in a moment. Um Carl in his early 30s is now a widower. Uh his wife, his first wife, Christina, who we haven't talked about yet just passed away two years ago when he's meeting Cindy in nineteen ninety two. Okay. And so Do we know from what? oh uh, yeah, we'll we'll go into it. Okay, okay. So he meets Cindy and they they hit it off, they start dating. She learns about his first wife that he lost in a fire two years mm-hmm. ago, and it's very sad he's also a now single dad of their three children. So okay. you know, Cindy is taken by him, and she feels like what a stand-up guy. And look at him raising three children by his own. Um, yeah, they met at a line dancing club, and <laughs> she was there to dance. He was there to meet somebody because he was just having drinks at the bar. He approached her, asked her if she wanted to dance, and the second they got out there, she realized he didn't know how to dance. Oh my gosh! So they they ended up. Having a a pretty good relationship. And she eventually meets his three children from his first marriage. And they like her, you know. They feel like Mm -hmm. she fills a void for them. They're very young at this point still. So it seems like things are going to go pretty well for this unit. And the pair marry about a year after they met in November. And they marry in 1993. So now his three young children have a stepmom. His youngest child's name is Katie. And at this point, she is, like, four, I think. And then he has a uh, middle child whose name is Levi. He's about a year older. And then his oldest daughter is Erin. She is about a year or two older than Levi. So they're all pretty close in age. They're all pretty young. I think Erin was—she's still single digits. I think she's, like, eight. Okay. So— they're living a pretty normal life over in Syracuse, um, in that area. They described the children as playful. Uh, they had a pretty good relationship with their, the person who they viewed as their new mom. There wasn't any sort of like weird, I'm um, taking over vibes. She came in very gentle, and the kids mm-hmm. mostly thought, well, I'm finally gonna have what the other kids have. Yeah. Uh, of the three of them. Aaron was the most brave, Katie was a little bit more reserved, and Levi, the middle child, he was creative and smart. He lived with a learning disability in his early years, which was undiagnosed because (laughs) late 90s, I mean, you know, it just goes that way. So he did suffer from poor grades throughout his youth and adolescence. And he kind of had a little bit of a difficult life. He was a little bit – I wouldn't say a loner. He had friends, but he was a little bit of like a picked on maybe. Yeah. And he kind of found his, his rhythm and who he was as a teen, as most of us try to. And mm-hmm. he got a little rebellious, quote, unquote. Uh, he wore like those like – his his usual outfit was like a big jeans and um, like a metal band T-shirt or something, you know. Ball necklace, that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. But everyone says he was, you know, still a kind of a goofy kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time Levi, this the middle son, turns sixteen, he moves out of the house, and he just was not really getting along with his dad. Okay. Um, they, the, the whole family, says that they fought a lot, um, but it was kind of maybe typical growing pains, rebellious kind of stuff at first. Okay. Levi moves out at 16 years old. He marries his girlfriend at the time, whose name was Cassie. So they marry pretty young and they have, like, a really quick civil ceremony. Uh, Pretty soon after, he has his first daughter with Cassie. This is Levi now. And he has his first daughter when he's 18 and his second daughter with Cassie when he's 20. Okay. Unfortunately, their relationship doesn't last and the two divorce – they remain co-parents, but Levi is is upset over the divorce. He it wasn't his choice. He starts to kind of lift himself out of his funk, and he starts to go around his family a little bit more. He's seeing his kids, and he gets himself a job at a factory. So he has a consistent job. So fast forward a little bit. It's when he divorces his wife. He's probably around. 20 or 21 years old. Um, He gets himself a new job probably around 2006, 2007. So Mm -hmm. at that point, he is around mm, 21 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old. Okay. Uh, He's working there for a while. Things are going pretty well. And, you know, this is where the Carlson family is at this point. So we have Mm -hmm. the father, Carl who is married to his second wife, Cindy. They live at home in a Syracuse area with their three children, and Mm -hmm. everything's kind of okay. All the children are around their, like, you know, late teens, early 20s. Okay. So fast forward to 2008. It's a few years later. Levi's been working at the factory for a couple years now, Life's just kind of going on as normal. Everyone's kind of in their rhythm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: One day, uh, Cindy and Carl are on their way to go to a funeral of somebody. I don't remember who it was for because they always just refer to it as this funeral. I think it was a, like, family friend or someone in Cindy's family. Okay. So they go to this funeral, and uh, before they go, they are the only one that's home— Besides, besides the two of them at the time, was Levi. Uh, Levi was at the house because he was going to be working on the truck for them to kind of fix it in the driveway. There was okay. a truck that was kind of out of commission for a while that they worked on. So Levi was at the house when they left. They're, like, leaving. He's out front um, just, you know, working on the truck. And uh, so Cindy gets in the car. She's waiting for her husband. Her husband gets in the car. He's like, okay, I'm all ready to go. Um, And he's like, let's just – I'm just going to go tell Levi, you know, we'll see him later and to lock up when he's done. Yeah. He leaves. Gets back like a minute or two later. They leave. They go to the funeral. It's kind of out of town. So they go to the event. They come home around four hours later. And uh, they go inside. And then Cindy hears her husband screaming from outside. So she goes to the window, and he's screaming, call 911, call 911, something's happened. Levi is hurt. So she calls 911, and you can hear in the background when she's on the 911 call that she finds out that it seems like Levi is actually dead. Uh, She hasn't seen him yet. It's her husband screaming from outside. He says he's under the car and that the car has fallen on him, and he's, he's dead. So he's, uh, she's on the phone screaming with nine one one. They're asking if they've tried CPR. She screams outside, "Have you tried CPR?" And uh, her husband screams back, "His chest is crushed." And she's screaming, "Oh my God, this is awful. He's probably been under there for hours." So, uh, you know, authorities come to the scene, first responders and everything. They ask what happened. Uh, they're interviewing them. You know, they say exactly what happened. And that they've been gone for four hours. They investigate the scene. They see, of course, unfortunately, vivit is under the the tire of the truck outside. He he is dead. He was 23 years old. Oh,
0: 23
1: so years old. That's terrible. So they look at the scene, and it, it looks like a t- terrible accident. He was using a... Um, have you ever jacked up a car to do, um, like a a tire change? I have seen it happen. Okay, (laughs) I've done it a lot because my dad's a mechanic, so it's like something I had to learn how to do before I could get out on the road. And I've had a multitude of type of tire jacks, and I've had this type of tire jack that was used, Uh um, in a very much smaller capacity. He was lifting up a truck, so it was heavier duty, but it's this it's not the style of jack where you, um have a lot of control it's very small and Uh it almost it looks flat and then as you start pumping it up it like um bows out to like a diamond shape yeah 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 yeah. and then flattens out into a a solid line as it goes higher up so it's it's very small um you have to get it just on the right spot you can't have anything too high up with it when you do it and you can't be like Fidgeting around with the vehicle, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So it just looks like it was underneath it, and it's just it was a big truck, and it fell. So it's traumatic, obviously, for everybody. Um, everyone is really distraught on the scene. He's a 23 year old kid, obviously, their child. Yeah. So, so that's it. It's it's pretty like open and shut. It feels like. Yeah. Some f- strange things come up afterwards, though. Okay. And it starts to brew inside of Cindy's head that something is kind of funny. Something Uh doesn't sound right. She realizes that it's only maybe a week or so after he dies Mm -hmm. that Carl tells her that there was a life insurance policy on Levi she was not Mm -hmm. aware of. And Mm -hmm. it's pretty pricey. Uh, She finds out that Carl had driven his son, Levi, to an insurance office, she wasn't aware of this, it's her stepson um, to get a policy on him because he had two he has two young daughters and he works in a glass factory, so mm-hmm. they thought an accidental death is possible, and it's best to just have something. The policy was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, okay the first payment on this policy because Levi did not have that kind of money was made by Carl in cash, okay the in order for the policy to become active and to be able to be paid out uh one provision was that Levi had to take a medical exam in order to pass and be qualified for this type of coverage yeah the medical exam was scheduled already for um November 21st 2008 that's a day after Levi was found dead i was going to say so he
0: supposedly mysteriously died the day before he was supposed to have this medical exam for a life insurance policy that his father had paid for. Yes. Okay.
1: And one detail that might have made him ineligible for this policy that we find out about later from the paperwork is that Levi had a, it doesn't say what it was, but he had some sort of food disorder type thing um, where he couldn't ingest food the same way that most people could. Like, it didn't pass through his body the right way. Mm -hmm. And so he was, like, diagnosed with this affliction of some type that Mm -hmm. would have prevented him from getting this life insurance policy. Okay. So this would have canceled out all that money. For some reason, even though he never took this exam, the insurance policy still pays out. Over $700,000. And, um... It pays it completely to Carl because Carl also has a handwritten will from Levi that says to distribute all of the ass- all of his assets to Carl, his, his uh, father, and his father is responsible for distributing the assets to his daughters, uh, whose names are Ivy and Electra. Okay, and that um, that will was notarized a day after Levi died. The day after? The day after he was pronounced dead is when the will was notarized. Huh. Exactly. Okay. So he gets a huge payout. Um, nobody yeah. in the family knows exactly how much money he gets, allegedly. Uh, the kids certainly didn't know. Uh, they're all old enough to be asking questions, and they're asking about, like, oh, we didn't even know our brother had an insurance policy, and, you know, what's what's all this? And Carl just tells the kids, oh, it's, it was barely enough to cover funeral expenses. So we just used it for that. Um, mm-hmm. He got over $700,000 is what they didn't know. So it's all very shady, but it just happens and nobody does anything about it. There's suspicions, but it's kind of just nothing. Um, yeah. Both of his daughters at this point believe that their father had something to do with the death of their brother. So this is what they're living with now because they have no proof. They don't want to accuse anybody, but this is what their daily life and belief is now. Uh, What seems to be kind of like out of nowhere, four years later in 2012, nothing, no movement on the case. No one's even investigating anything. It's an accident. Hmm. All of a sudden, the details of his first wife's death come into question. Oh, right. And they're thinking, hmm, there's some strange things about this guy. Yeah. And so let's talk about – let's talk about the husband. Let's talk about his (laughs) uh, first wife. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's see. So his first wife's name was Christina, and the two met when they were in the Air Force together, Christina and Carl. They were young. Um, Christina has multiple siblings, She was most close with her little sister, Colette, and Mm -hmm. her parents would describe Colette as like the tomboy and Christina as the Susie homemaker type, which was surprising to them when Christina was the one who joins the Air Force later in life. And it was while Christina was in the Air Force that she meets Carl. She fell for him pretty quickly, and she started calling her family and telling them about this great guy that she met in the Air Force and how they were dating and they were very happy for her. He seemed like a nice guy. That Someone had talked to him on the phone. Things were pretty good. Um, they were together for a while, but nobody really met him because they were in the military. So yeah. when they were finished and they announced to their families that they were engaged, everyone was very happy for them. They couldn't wait to meet him. They couldn't wait to attend the wedding, all of that kind of stuff. So they get married um, after they're out of the Air Force. Carl... Gets laid off from his job in New York at this point. And so he finds a job in California, in Northern California. And it's not clear why he found a job over there. But the good coincidence of it is that Christina, his uh, fiance, her mm-hmm. family all lives in Northern California. So it's really close to home for her. Her family is thrilled. So, mm-hmm. you know, great. Um, the yeah. the two of them get married before they move, I believe. They move to California. They have their kids, the three children we spoke about already, and they're living in a town called Murphy's. It's like Murphy with an S. Um,
0: in California? Yep, yeah,
1: Murphy's, California. It's northern California. It's about 90 minutes from Sacramento.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I know Murphy's for, for some reason. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I've never heard of it, but it's, it's very – rural quaint town mm-hmm. from the like videos i've seen of it and like the news reports mm-hmm. and stuff and uh it's, it's very rural and they they find a home it's their own place it's kind of a fixer-upper at first it very like run down sort of large shack <laughs> barney mm-hmm. type vibes mm-hmm. barn-esque vibes i should say
0: yeah not like the dinosaur no
1: <laughs> but they do a great job they fix it up it's their pride and joy and uh That's where they live, and they're very close Mm -hmm. to family, which, again, is very, very happy for her. She's close to her family um, now physically when she's always been very emotionally close to them, so wonderful. They're living over there and uh, having sort of a what appears to be a normal life from the outside, but the more Colette spends time with her sister and her um, sister's family, she realizes that. It's not quite as nice as it seems on the outside. Um, okay. Carl is aggressive, he's possessive, and he's n- very unkind to her sister. Uh, she witnesses a lot of fights, she witnesses a lot of tension. she doesn't like it, but she doesn't want to intrude. Um, her sister confides in her that it's not exactly what she is happy with and yeah. that he's not kind to her, that she's he's controlling. she's she's unhappy. Um, Her sister one time tries to cheer her up by getting her glamour shots because she had just turned 30, and that was, like, the thing back then. Um, She does it. She comes home. They're, like, excited about them, and when Carl comes home and sees her all, like, done up, he calls her a, quote, unquote, whore Uh and, you know, sends her into, like, you know, a tizzy. So it's a pretty unsavory life. The kids say that there was a lot of fighting growing up, that they'd be sent to their rooms, but they heard everything through the door mm-hmm. all the time. In Christmas 1990, the family spend their last Christmas all together as a, like, conjoined family. <laughs> um, this is because January 1st, 1991, Aaron, the, uh, I think that's the oldest of the children, remembers that their dad said, okay, uh, it's it's January 1st. We're taking the tree out. So they took the Christmas tree out front, and he said, I want to show you guys an example of how quickly a house can burn. And he doused it in kerosene and lit it on fire in the front lawn or in the front <sighs> And the kids are like, I know that sounds strange, but I think we just thought it was like a weird lesson in fire safety, and we just kind of went on with yeah. our lives. Um, yeah. It burnt. It went out. They went back inside, and they all went back to bed. It was the morning. <laughs> uh, the kids weird. went back in their rooms. Christina went to go take a bath, and Carl went into the attic to go work on something. January 1st, 1991 again. Carl goes to the garage to continue working on whatever project he's working on. He's getting some tools or whatever. He's in there for a while tinkering with things when he hears his wife screaming from inside. So he opens the door to go inside, and there's smoke everywhere. The house is on fire. So he's able to save his children. He hears his Uh wife screaming, save the kids. He can't see her. There's smoke everywhere, fire all over the house. So he goes outside, and he runs around the back. He breaks the window for his son Levi's room, grabs him by his hair, pulls him outside, and throws him to safety. He runs around, breaks the window for the girls' rooms, uh, girls' room, and is able to get them both out. He goes to break the window for the bathroom, but it's boarded shut. It had been broken huh. already. So he goes to get inside, and he can't get past the flames to save his wife. His next option is to go get help, so he runs to a nearby house to call. It's rural, so he has to go far, and cell phones were not in their hands (laughs) at this time. Yeah. So the house burns down, essentially. She perishes in in the blaze from smoke inhalation. Um, There's a lot of suspicion at the time, but it just seems like a terrible accident. Hmm. After the fire happens it's discovered there's a $200,000 policy on Christina life insurance policy mm. that is paid out to him. Uh remind
0: me of the year again this is the 90s. This is
1: 1991 January 1st 1991. Okay, okay. when she passes away. So she was 30 years old. Mm. 30 years old mother of 3 just in her bathroom. Terrible. They found her just in the tub. She had uh a rag over her face, probably trying to cover her face from smoke inhalation. Smoke, yeah. Colette, her sister, goes to the scene the day after the blaze and videotapes mm-hmm. narrating the entire scene of the of the fire. And you can hear her on this narration. You could tell she's already suspicious. Mm-hmm. She finds the bathroom and stands in the bathroom where they found her sister, which is, it's burnt to to everything, this whole place. And yeah. the... The window for the bathroom is still intact, and it still has a board nailed shut over it. Huh. And it's really, really in there, like a ton of nails. And uh, she essentially would never have been able to get out because there was fire on the other side of the door. Yeah. Authorities ask Carl why the the window was nailed shut, and he says it's because weeks before his wife had tried to open it and couldn't get it open, it was jammed, and she used a plunger to try to open it, and she broke it. Hmm. Carl's brother, Mike, says that, Carl told him it was too late. He tried to get in. He couldn't help. He believes the fire happened because they have a kerosene furnace inside the house, a heater, Mm, mm -hmm. and that their cat and dog had knocked over the kerosene uh, container like a week ago, and there was a spill that they had to clean up, and so he suspects that that was probably the source of the spill because it wasn't cleaned up well enough. Um, The kerosene heater is in the attic, he says, which is where he was working, and he knows he had one of those like trouble light things open up you know the trouble ones that are light. like um it's basically like a light bulb with a little shield on it that you can hang you know what i'm talking about a trouble light yeah uh you use them when you're doing construction or like home um oh oh like a, like
0: one of those like uh metal grate around a big bright light bulb exactly, kind of things. exactly yeah oh, okay okay
1: so we had one of those, and he said maybe that broke. Maybe that caused the fire. It was in the same room. I, w- I went from the attic to the garage. I don't know. So uh, obviously there's investigation. Insurance has an investigation. Law enforcement has an investigation. The autopsy rules an accidental death mm. from smoking inhalation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: His daughters say that when they they remember the day and when they were taken out to the car by their mom – that afterwards they saw their dad go back to help, quote-unquote, help their mom, but he just walked slowly to the house and made no attempt to get in. Mm. They also said that after he came back over to the car before authorities got there, he told told his kids that mommy went to heaven before anybody showed up. (sighs) And they just didn't understand. Wow. Four days after the fire in California in 1991, the family moves back to New York. They have not Four even, days later. They have not even buried the body yet. Wow. Uh, the investigation finds that <laughs> both investigations, police and fire, collectively find things like the policy that was purchased for his wife before the fire uh, mm-hmm. was purchased 19 days before the fire. <laughs> uh, a forensic specialist found that the light did not cause the fire. The light was off. The, the light bulb mm. um, there was no accident no reason to believe it was an accident Insurance still play, pays the claim 250,000 mm. no explanation why despite mm. all of the evidence. Uh, again and law enforcement didn't do a whole lot they said that you know every time the family called anybody they were told all they have is circumstantial evidence. Mm. Carl's character didn't change much in his second marriage. Cindy would later say that he was abusive to the children, which the children mm. have always said. She just said yeah. she it was um, hidden well from her. Yeah. The girls say he wasn't very physically abusive to them. He did things to them like punish them by making them carry buckets of water and hold their arms out and do things like that. Uh, but for Levi, the girls say that he would take him outside to punish him, and they can only imagine he was beaten because their dad would say he's a man. He could take it. That's awful. Cindy says that—that's the second wife, again, says that this was hidden well from her. When he gets the payout, the $700,000 payout, this is back fast-forwarding after his son has died. Yeah. When he gets the $700,000 payout from that and lies about it and doesn't tell anybody, he pays very little for the funeral. It costs very little. And then the rest of it, he spent trying to start a duck business. A duck. Duck Duck-like Quack, quack. Yes. He wanted to raise and sell gourmet ducks to restaurants. He spent a lot of money doing this. Random business. Uh. And Cindy said they went from having 10 ducks to thousands of ducks within a very short window of time. It got completely out of control. They were hemorrhaging money. They couldn't even afford to feed the ducks they had. So they spent all this money on that vehicles vacations together the kids were very suspicious about this money and they kept asking where is this money coming from and cindy kept denying it and saying it's the duck business i don't know she kept saying i'm in the dark i don't know where it's coming from i don't know i i'm not trying to say she's lying yeah that she's in the dark but i it's hard that i'll just say that yeah two years after levi's death Two years after. So now we are in 2010, I believe. Let me just make sure. Yeah. Uh, 2010, two years after Levi's death. Cindy starts getting really, really suspicious. She starts to have panic attacks out of nowhere. She doesn't trust her husband. They start to find out that they're financially... (laughs) They're basically broke after all the money he had. And uh, so she takes a little pile of money. She moves out, and she takes... Um, she hires a private detective to look into her husband. Mm -hmm. She finds out that he has taken a life insurance policy out on her. She's worth Mm -hmm. $1.2 million if she's dead. Oh, no. So she's terrified. Um, Yeah. She calls her cousin and says, I don't know what to do. I'm on my own. I'm scared. Here's the policy. Here's what I think my, my husband has done. I think he killed his son. Her cousin calls the police and reports everything. So the police start looking into it. This is why the fire starts to come up. This is why Levi's investigation gets looked into at all because yeah. of this anonymous call. Thank God. Police look into Carl and find out that he also has a car fire to a 1986 Mustang he bought back in 1986. Uh, he... An 86 Mustang. That's my. That was my first How car. How funny is that? I didn't even make yeah. that connection when you said it. Well, he got $10,000 from an insurance policy on that one. It burned in his driveway, no explanation. Wow. 2002, he got an insurance policy from a. uh, He got an insurance payout for a barn fire. Unexplained bar of fire. Three horses died, two of them were babies. A barn that was in his family for years, too. Devastating to the family. He got a payout. Unexplained. So this is like five or four or five now really. Tragic things that happen around this guy where he benefits and other people will suffer. Yeah. So 2012 comes around. Cindy wants to help with the investigation. She's terrified. She knows the yeah. police know now. She's ready to, like, work with them. So she watches a lot of TV. She sees someone record someone on a TV show, and she gets the idea. So she, on her own, goes and has dinner with Carl and tells him, I will – consider getting back together with you and moving back in with you if you are 100% honest with me about everything. Yeah. And so she records him, and he confesses. She says he confesses to everything. (sighs) She runs to the police. It is inaudible. No. So police are like, are you willing to try again? And she says yes. So they wire her, do everything properly, and she goes and meets with him. She records him. She can't get him to say the exact same thing. But she tries really hard on the recording, even though he says at one point, part of me feels like I'm walking into a booby trap. Yeah. She assures him, no, I just need to know before I'm ready to proceed with you. I just need to know because I, it was a lot of information you gave me, you know, and I just need to process it. And all she can – basically at the end of it, she gets him to say, I didn't push the truck. I took advantage of the situation once it had happened. And she's like, what do you mean? That's not what you said. And he said, I panicked, and I saw the opportunity. So police are like, this is enough to bring him in for questioning. November 23rd, 2012. He is brought in for questioning. He's very buddy-buddy with them at first, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just hey. And they ask him if they know why he's there. And he says, this is about my dead wife and son. Uh- okay. So he tells three stories during this interrogation. The first one is the same as always. I went to church or I went to the funeral. We came home and we found him that way. Right. And he's like, did you wire Cindy? And they're like, yes. And he's like, I thought you did. I was just, I, I lied to her. I just wanted to get back with her. Mm. Um, he spends a lot of time very narcissistically talking about himself and his injuries and his time in the war and his poor back. And he's like, hey, can we move around? And he's just palling around with them. Second story he finally breaks into is that when he went back into the house when his wife was waiting in the car, uh, he went back to see his son to say goodbye, and he was already dead. The car had already fallen on him before they left, and he was in (laughs) such a state of shock that he didn't know what to do, so he left. So he just
0: went to the funeral. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and when he got home, that's when it hit him. (laughs) So they go a little harder on him, and he starts crying. He says, okay, he was still alive when I went to the house. And I was helping him with something, and I had to get into the truck. So I opened the truck, even though it was on the thing. It accidentally tipped over and fell on him, and I I panicked and I left. And they say, okay, we got here, let's take the final step. And he's like, no, 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 that's it. I was just so scared I went to the funeral. (sighs) And he says, you know, after everything, you know, it looks like they're letting him, like, maybe take a minute to, like, be on by his own, and he says, "What kind of person does that? Killing your wife, your kids, your uncles," and they're like, "We didn't say you killed your wife," and he goes, "Oh no, I know, I know that. I just, I just you know, who does that?" So they're like, "Let's talk about that." So they sit him back down and talk to him about the California case.
0: Also, what about what about uncles?
1: Yeah, he just threw uncles randomly because he realized he just implicated Said himself your wife, with the your wife, yeah, your uncles, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. They talk about that, and he's calm. He says, you know, I couldn't get into the window. The window was extremely small. You could barely get a baby out of that window. We've seen the window on film. It's huge. Massive. Um, He says that the life insurance policy on his first wife was bought maybe four months before the death. We know it was only 19 days. And, you know, they say, wow, a lot of tragedy happens to you. All the stuff. And he's like, I know, right? (laughs) And they're like, okay. So... Uh, when this investigation is reopened, which she doesn't know is happening, uh, the family of his first wife finds out about it, and they're thrilled because Colette has never stopped trying to get this reopened for yeah. her sister since it happened. So wow. she's thrilled. And that was h- how many years ago? Oh, my like gosh. 20? That was the 90s. So uh, that was 1990, I think, when she died. 1991, okay. the first day of 1991. It's now 2012. Wow. So— she's thinking finally we might get some sort of um justice for her yeah the investigation's reopened and authorities are shocked to find all the notes from the first fire that proved it proved it wasn't an accident they also find in the reports that there was evidence of a second kerosene pour seconds before the fire maybe a minute or two maximum and it was quoted as a deliberate pour mm. <laughs> so no one could believe that this was not that this was paid out to him, and in fact, one of the fire investigators, even though he's retired, he's kept boxes from this investigation just for this wow. purpose because he never could believe it himself. Wow. So Carlson is arrested. The media goes insane. Um, yeah. His daughter Erin goes to see him while he's in custody to talk to him at his request, and he's telling her a stop story and how everything is against him, and he's very upset. She doesn't support him. Nobody does. And she says, I know you killed my mother, and I know you killed my brother. And I know you're finally going to get caught for killing my mother. And she says that he said to her, quote, it's been 22 years. They haven't caught me yet, and they're not going to. Uh, To his daughter. Wow. So, um, as far as motive for Levi, the family believes it's because Levi was starting to fight with his father about the mysterious death of that fire. For their parents. And his sisters say that they were fighting a lot about it in the house. Cindy remembers it too. And that Levi believed that he had killed their mother and he would not let it go. Uh, The family says that they all believed it, the two sisters, but that Levi had, quote, a a steel spine and wouldn't back down. And it even resulted in a fist fight in the kitchen once. When it's supposed to go to trial, there's a shocking turn of events and it does not go to trial at all. Because in November Hmm. 2013... Carl pleads guilty, takes a plea deal for second-degree murder. Wow. Part of the plea deal is he has to confess all of his wrongdoings to the judge for a shorter sentence.
0: Oh, boy. I feel like this list is going to be longer than what we've already heard, right? It's,
1: it's not much longer, but okay, it's good. not great. Um, <laughs> yeah. He admits to pushing the truck on purpose. Oof, he admits man. that he set the truck up to be pushed before his son even got under it and set the whole thing up to kill his son. God. And he admits... That when he pushed the truck on his son, before they left, he was still alive, oh, and he left God. him there to die, and went God. to a funeral. Unbelievable. Yeah. Part of the plea deal, he gets 15 years for the sentence, which was obviously too short, especially with his confession. However, when the California case reopens, they go to trial. On trial for that case, Carl's. Uh, I'm sorry. Christina's other sister, not Colette, his other sister says that when she talked to Carl the day after Christina had died and she was upset mm-hmm. on the phone, she said to him, quote, I, to- I told Carl that I wanted to see my sister, and he said, quote, you can't. She's a crispy critter. Oh. Okay. Wow. The DA charges Carl Carlson in Christina's death. He goes to court for it. In court, he smiles. At his daughter's. It sends chills down her spine. He's found guilty at the end of the trial. Um, Why go to trial for that one when he pled guilty to killing his son? So I think he just thought he could get away with this one. Mm. And he, it was so long after he was so arrogant about it. He thought he covered all of his bases and that they would have gotten him already. So yeah. he's wrong, though, luckily, because he's found guilty. Good. Uh, it doesn't take long. And he's sentenced to life in prison. So after he gets out in New York, he's going to be, you know, what the word is. (laughs) I was going to say expedited. I don't know if that's the word. but Extradited. uh, Extradited. Thank you. Expedited. It's very different. Uh, (laughs) But he'll be sent to California to serve out the rest of his sentence there. No possibility of parole. Mm -hmm. And he was found guilty of the second crime, coincidentally, or maybe fate would have it, on what would have been his son's Mm -hmm. uh, 35-year-old birthday, 35th birthday. So he's found guilty for the murder of his first wife on what would have been his son's 35th birthday. Mm -hmm. They find out afterwards, after he's sentenced, and he's in prison, that he had also at one point taken a life insurance policy out on both of his granddaughters. Oh, my God. His daughter, um, his son's ex-wife had to find that out. They did an investigation and found... They didn't even know that was a possible thing for these kids, but he had done it. Wow. Uh, They were able to cash it out, luckily, and get rid of it so they can live in peace. People that are not really spoken about a lot in this case are Cassie Hahn and her children, who are the children of the deceased Levi Carlson. Mm -hmm. They lost their dad at ages 10 and 8 years old, and he was in their lives. They're now 18 and 16 only still. Wow. Uh, and Cassie was very much still in, involved in her ex-husband's life. Mm-hmm. She says, quote, I'm happy that a killer is off the street. I'm happy that my children are safe. But it doesn't give my kids back their dad. It doesn't give them anything back that was stolen from them.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Cassie would also like to change the message on the headstone. It says, beloved son, because it was chosen by Carl. Mm. And Cassie says that she tries to keep Levi's memory alive. And that at holidays, there's a tabletop Christmas tree dedicated to, quote, Daddy Levi. Mm. And that at Halloween, the girls brought painted pumpkins and they decorate Levi's grave. Mm. Um, Levi is buried side by side with his mother, Christina, who both got justice. Yeah. In Murphys, California. And uh, Carl is still in prison today for the first crime in New York. He has appealed and has been rejected. Good. Um... And that is the tragic story of the deaths of Christina Carlson and Levi Carlson. Wow, what a asshole! <laughs> I mean, just disgusting, disgusting, I mean, and the arrogance with which he right. just lived his life right, Wow, no remorse N- yeah i gross, yeah, yeah. pretty chilling um. Again, there's not a lot of connections to the episode, but some of the things I thought that were in common that I loved was a a tenacious sister who fought for her sister for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which props to Colette, and thank thank goodness for those families getting some justice. And for what it's worth, both daughters seem to be doing very well for themselves. They seem very well adjusted as much as can be, and they're able to talk about it freely, which is a very good sign yeah um of of healing so yeah anyway what do we uh what do we think of this episode? <laughs> um well, for
0: watchability um, I found it a little slow at times, yeah. so I'm gonna say c for watchability. what about you mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I found it a little boring,, yeah. I'll give it a c, yeah, um,
0: and then how it dealt with things, i mean, obviously, it didn't have a crime, it was inspired by.
1: Mm-hmm. wasn't
0: nothing terrifically offensive in this episode
1: so i don't know b yeah i think that's fair i would give it a i'd give it a b yeah. i don't think there was anything wrong with it i just didn't didn't really connect with Love me it. very much yeah i agree by the way did you all know that our podcast is extremely free and we have new free episodes every week. So you should subscribe because it costs nothing to do so or to write a review. And you know what else
0: is free? Telling somebody else. So if you like free things, give somebody the free gift of telling them
1: for free to watch our, or to listen to our podcast. <laughs> and what else is free is following us on social media. So you can find us on Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. So send us a message. Yeah.
0: And, uh... We have a Patreon, Uh, you know, that's not free, but uh, (laughs) it's great and low cost and you get fun episodes and stuff. So you should do that. And uh, we donate a percentage of our Patreon proceeds to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting our podcast, you're supporting positive change in the world.
1: Exactly. And if you want to support us in any other way, you can simply go to buymeacoffee.com backslash or forward slash or whatever slash slash n and matt and you can buy us a coffee thanks for listening to Rip from the headlines for free where you get the facts and some fiction we'll see you next week <laughs> and until then stay out of the headlines and stay free free <laughs>